verses. Psalm 16. And I'd like you to uh, keep, keep your Bibles open to that text when we're through, please. Um, because I will work through it a little bit more methodically, at least the first six verses of it. Psalm 16, I will pray first. Lord, thank you for uh, time in your word. I pray that the studies that I've uh, committed to here would uh, benefit your people, that your word would be um, cared for in my uh, possession, so to speak, and that your spirit would work greatly in us. Amen. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You may be seated. Again, please keep that open if you, if you can. Psalm 16 begins titled um, a, a Miktam of David. And there are six psalms that actually start that way. And somewhere I read that the word Miktam means golden or precious. Mostly people are not sure what the word means. I will tell you for sure that uh, David gives us pearls here. Pearls. And I'm trying to memorize this psalm. I am not a memorizer guy. And uh, this is the first time I'm trying to memorize something in about 30 years. And so, uh, and that's literally 30 years. I don't know, Zach was probably a little kid before last time I tried to memorize anything. But... Um, it's, it's painful trying to memorize for me. My head doesn't work that way. But this is so wonderful. And I, and I started wanting to memorize this before I ever thought about preaching on it. So this is just a result of that. It's beautiful. David speaks the truth in it, but he also demonstrates his relational approach to God in the psalm. You'll see his faith 
in his behavior here. One minute David is saying things about himself or he's expressing a feeling and the next he's tying God into it and then he's talking to the Lord all of a sudden. And that comes and goes. An example, if you look at verse 1, he starts by talking to the Lord. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. It's the direct communication to God in his head or in his Maybe it's in his lips even. It's in his pen for sure. Then he talks about himself and other believers. He tells us how he talks to God even. This is how I talk to God. I, I, say, to the, I say to the Lord. Then he addresses God again in one short sentence at the end of verse 5, you hold my lot. Then he continues stating things about himself again, about God again, about reality, only to come back at the end of the psalm in verses 10 and 11 where he directly talks to God again. You will not abandon my soul, he says in verse 10 and verse 11, you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But this intermittent way, this conversational existence he has with God, that, that's, someone, that's how someone with faith behaves. And, and I think that the more mature you get, the more you behave that way. Whereas most of my Christian life, I, I can look at it and think, boy, I... I ran around doing all kinds of things, reading and saying all kinds of things, but it wasn't a regular conversational thing. Very little prayer. So I, I appreciate this psalm more because maybe it's, it's becoming more how I relate to God. Also, the person who has faith and, and walks with God They find their comfort in him. Whether at ease, you know, in in life or suffering, whether rich or poor, young or old, accompanied by a whole bunch of people always or, or very much by yourself, the person who has God gets the best life. They get the best life. Again, I don't, it doesn't matter if they're poor or rich, sick, or healthy. The person who has God gets the best life. While others who strip away and and go it alone apart from him, they have difficulty upon difficulty, futility after futility, a lost life. And yet how easy is that for us, even as Christians, to kind of just strip away and do our God stuff without him. It can't, it can't be missed. I mean, we, we're going to do this. We're people. But somehow we've got to, to live more of this intermittent relational life and I always call to our own remembrance that God's with us and we, we get to talk to him.
We get to have him. And as we begin this new year, and I, this is one of my favorite times, is the week between Christmas and New Year's where you can start to organize yourself again and start to plan for a, a new year. What does it make a difference? You know, it's just a, a date on a calendar. But for me, it's like, okay, it's, it's reset button. It's refresh. Let's, let's do it better this year. Okay. But I, I present the psalm to you today. And I think it promises you peace in this world and contentment with God in a way that you need it. Because, and even now, I guess I look around the last few years, we live in a society where so much is left undone. And this is, this is forever, but, but especially it's burdensome now. Things are left undone. Many people want to, seems like they want to drive the wrong way. And there's much that is unsatisfactory, much that is frustrating. And you might think to yourself, well, I can do some things to bring change. However, I'm a drop in the ocean. I can hardly even fold a fold at the corners of a table napkin, what difference will I make? And I'm going to tell you today, quit putting things in your terms. Quit putting things in your terms. Stop limiting the Son of God by a weak faith. If you become too afraid of the things of this world, then you should mature. Don't be a baby. Don't be a baby. Sure, the times can can seem dire, and you should think. You should be a thinking person and be serious. But you have to walk with God and quit worrying about all those things that the Gentiles would normally worry about, to use Jesus' phraseology. They don't have him. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He is your portion. Don't miss this. Now, let's look at this. Now, verse 1, right? Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. What is it to take refuge? It's to go somewhere for safety. It's to flee from danger to a secure place, a fort maybe, or a castle, or even a cave, as David once found out. Well, God is David's refuge. He's the one who protects David from others. He protects David from events and circumstances. He even protects David from himself. And you need to hear that. All of those things can hurt you. But it is sometimes true and listen, that God protects 
only from harm that destroys, but he permits the necessary affliction and the necessary hurt to come to you because it will help you. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm saying that God uses pain, trouble, and other dark things to make us better. Consider, for instance, that this, this psalm that we're in, okay, and don't get away from the text yet, I'm just going to add this, this psalm is a messianic psalm, okay, it means that a lot of it is really speaking to the Messiah to come. David, at some point, if not in all points, he puts his feet kind of in the sandals of his future son, the son of man. And in verse 10, he writes, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The, the Holy One there is, is Jesus. It's not David. And, and that's proven by the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. He, he points that out. Okay, He says, Brothers, I I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, and he says now he's looking back at Psalm 16, he foresaw, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So my point being that Peter is saying some of this psalm was obviously referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. David died. He was buried. His body did see corruption. So David was writing about his descendant in verse 10. The son who would reign forever as David's representative over the kingdom. In that sense, David spoke of his own promised place and person in the days to come. God does not abandon David or the everlasting covenant he made with David. But my point here is something else. Back to this text, okay? My point is to say when God preserves, it doesn't mean that we will be free from all suffering. Jesus suffered. In fact, Jesus was killed. But he wasn't destroyed. And better things for God's people is the result. David suffered too. Sometimes we feel the pain for good reason. And maybe we haven't figured out what that good reason is yet. And we do a lot of just getting through it. Or worse, we feel sorry for ourselves. But pain is for good reason, 
for God's purposes, and it is meant to benefit us. Nonetheless, God preserves and cares for those he loves, and and David goes to him for it. Now, why would David need to be preserved? It is what he's asking God to do, preserve me. But why? Because he wants to keep existing and carrying on for God. He's just not at his wit's end thinking, oh, I just need to survive. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. He wants to carry on for God. He wishes to stay in the game. God surely takes interest in us, and he can preserve from sickness, imprisonment, heartbreak, loneliness, failure, abandonment, judgment, and all other circumstances that come against us. He can preserve us from those things. So I think we should follow David's example and take refuge in God. The Lord is the one who protects from terrible monsters and devious men and from ourselves. Furthermore, God God is not only like a mighty fortress that we can run to, but he's the great protagonist of history, always on the offense against the wicked. In verse 2, David says, well, he's actually talking to you and me. He tells us what he says to God. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So he's telling us what he says to the Lord and what he says about the Lord. It's like he's teaching us how it goes. This is what I do. This is who God is to me. But then he says, To the Lord, I have no good apart from you. What does that mean? What is good? Isn't our family good? Your home, your work, your possessions, the sun, the moon, the trees, the the stars, water buffalo. Aren't those things all good? So when he says, I have no good apart from you, what does he mean? I don't think he's calling these other things bad. They're good, aren't they? They are his, David's, aren't they, to some degree? Yet, these other things are bad by how he says his sentence here. They become almost by definition or comparison bad, I have no good apart from you. I don't know, I think things can become bad if they have somehow captured our affections away from God. If we like them too often more than the Lord, Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a whole book. It was a chapter. I think it was supposed to be a chapter, but it's long, like it's a book length. 
called religious affections, dealing with this topic. I'm not going to go into any of his things, just mention that as another book in case you're looking to read something. It's similar, though, I think, to when Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I think it's similar to that. There's another passage that makes a lot of sense to me in this same vein. Mark 10, 28 through 30, it says, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Okay, a lot of good things, right? We have left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who, is, who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So I think that captures what David's saying here a little bit too. It's similar to the thing that says, I have no good apart from you. David's all in. Everything is to to be despised if it gets in the way of my love and obedience to the Lord. That's what you probably need to hear. Everything is is to be despised if it gets in the way of my love and obedience to the Lord. If the Lord, look, if the Lord is not cleaving himself to the things you are loving, if he is not in support of the thing you spend so much time doing, if the good position possessions you own are not utilized for his kingdom's purpose, then your affections are not like David's affections. I brought this up at council meeting. I said, you could have two people that look a lot alike. They do the same types of things. They both go to church. They both go to work. They both have families. They both have boats, whatever. They could look a lot alike, but they're living for completely different reasons. The one is living more like David, and the other is lost and living for themselves. They need improvement. You must thank God is your only good. Then those other people and things will become good for you as well. In their place. If they come first, then they have become a detrimental weight around your neck. If they come first, they have become a detrimental weight around your neck. 
And David's all about people who think of God first. Look at verse 3. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Why would David delight in the saints of the land? Who are they? They're the faithful ones. The people that you talk about God with. The the people who are trying to think of ways to bring God's will into the world. Just like you want God's will into the world. Those people that have got their priorities set according to more of a heavenly scale. They are the saints in the land. They are the excellent ones. And I'll tell you, it's a blast getting together with believers who want God's things to come to pass. It's a good thing. Sometimes people get to talk about sports, right, hunting or or business, but it's most exciting when you get to talk about the things of Christ and his kingdom. I can enjoy conversations with a person or start talking about companies. I like that. It trips my trigger. Football, I tend to be a, a Packer fan and so on. Writing, I like talking about people who are trying to write books or whatever. Or movies, oh yeah, I've got a million movies in my brain. <laughs> but if we cannot talk about God among these things, then it lacks I have non-Christian friends and associates that I enjoy. But it's not like we live for the same cause. David knows the excellent ones are the saints in the land. He considers himself one of them, a fellow soldier, a team player. And he's intending to leave it all on the field. In verse 4, he warns the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or, or take their names on my lips. That's kind of like the one contrary sentence to the things he says here. Is this warning about running after another God. Anyone on earth, I'm going to say this and it will sound, um, it would be one of those kind of sentences that could be used against you, right? <laughs> so, uh, in, 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 the day, in, in our day. Anyone on earth, any person who runs after another God is trying to peel himself away from God Almighty, okay? That, that's not the big thing. But that's what they're doing. They're trying to peel themselves away from God Almighty. The ever-present, okay, the true God. They, they want to get away from him. That's the reality of it. Every person. And such a person will suffer sorrows for running away toward a mock God a false god, and those sorrows, they shall multiply. That is the road to perdition. And sorrows can come in a variety of ways. They are internal, they are external, visible and invisible, but what's the reason for them? What is the source of these sorrows? 
from whence do they come? God brings sorrows onto mankind because, because men wish to live without him. God brings sorrows onto mankind because men wish to live without him. God curses man because of sin. And there are many more than 31 flavors of curse. Now here's where I'm getting to the point where I'm going to say something that David knows you should have nothing to do with another God. He will not participate in that kind of worship or even speak their names. And this, this, him saying that is frankly David just applying the words of the Pentateuch back in Exodus. Moses taught that you should pay attention to all that I have said to you. Make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So David's actually writing that in his psalm here. I will not pour out their, or take their names on my lips. What does he mean by that, that he should not take their names upon his lips? Okay, we get the idea of pouring out uh, their drink offerings. He's not going to do that as part of their worship. But this taking their names upon their lips, it doesn't mean you mustn't speak their name, like you don't say the name Voldemort, right, or something like that. The name the name of these mock gods are, are frequently spoken throughout Scripture, Baal and Ashtaroth and so on and so forth, right? What it means to not take their names on your lips is that you won't worship them or even give them weight, or even give them weight as if they existed or were legitimate. Here's the provocative part. It's messed up. There are no other gods. Don't ever learn to respect religions other than the Christian one. Don't ever learn to respect religions other than the Christian one. They are each one contrived and damnable. They represent a haunt of demons at worst or defiant imaginations of men at best. False religions hurt people because God multiplies the sorrows of those who participate in them. That's the provocative thing. Not that provocative, I hope, for the Christian. But it would be if you proclaimed it as a teacher in the public school or some such thing, or as a politician. To be sure, any and every decline of obedience or crippling of our faith is the consequence of the heart's desire to go astray and to wander. And this is the new natural heart of the unconverted. It started beating at the fall, 
No, David will have nothing to do with the behaviors of those who ra- to run after another god. Rather, according to verse 5, he says, The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. There's beauty in that metaphor, okay? It seems like David puts together about two or three metaphors just in that one sentence. And they all seem to say, to say the same thing. First, he calls the Lord his chosen portion. And that terminology, okay, makes you think back to what God said to Aaron in, in Numbers 18.20. Aaron and his descendants were to serve as priests. They and the whole tribe of Levi who were uh, serving people who served in the temple, etc., were not given any, any of the big land chunks like the other tribes of Israel. Instead, God told Aaron that he was their portion. Those are the words he used. You shall have no... In- oh, sorry. And the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Now, a worldly mind would stop and say, well, Aaron got a bum deal there, didn't he? He didn't get any land. But the godly person realizes that he just, what, trumped out. He just won it all. So David wants that too. He chooses it for himself to have the Lord be his portion. What people count up as their earthly inheritance matters little to David. For he has God. The second metaphor is David calling the Lord my cup. You are my chosen portion and my cup. There's a, uh, another century ago, theologian Alexander McLaren, he writes, there may be, of course, an allusion to the metaphor of a feast here with a cup, right? But the word cup, which, which, which kind of refers to the man's portion at the feast, his portion for life. It is used with such a meaning in the well-known words my cup runneth over. And in another shape, in the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? It's the sum of circumstances which make up a man's fortune. So David's saying, you are my chosen portion and my cup. It seems to capture the same idea. My, my chosen portion is my life, my, what I want in life. My cup is what God has given me to drink. Both are intent on God being David's purpose for living. And David has not only claimed God, but then he addresses God directly with the same type of metaphor. And he says, you hold my lot. You see, you can gain everything when you make God your portion, he secures 
your investment in him. You hold my lot. It's like when Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's that Jim Elliott quote. I was thinking it came to my, my brain, and I had to look it up to make sure, you know, I had the words right. But he was the missionary who was killed by the Aka Indians, you know, when they took a plane in as missionaries, then went back again, and then the Indians slaughtered them all, and they were floating dead in the river and so on. But Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. David is glad that the Lord's, the securer who holds his allotment. The next sentence is the initial reason I went looking for this psalm, okay? The last sentence I'll deal with here this morning, it's it's uh, verse 6. David says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I thought when I I went looking for that, I thought I was feeling that, right? Like I, I was in that place, at least for a time. I still feel a little like I'm in that place. And that these thoughts in this sentence express what, what I've been feeling. And, and here, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. David could be referring to his earthly kingdom, right? Or, um, I mean, he was the earthly king of God's people. That's a pretty cool and maybe frightening uh, place to be. But also the land of Israel was united under his kingship still. And that's a good thing because it it went awry later on in his life. And then with Solomon and and others, um, there was some shifting that went on. Or uh, David could be referring to that son who will one day sit and rule from his forever throne... That's, that's pleasant. Or he could be referring to God, right? The one he already claimed as his portion and cup. But I believe all these are true. For as I suggested previously, okay, if God is your only good thing, then all God gives you, all God gives you to steward will be good by default. Now, if God's not your only good thing, don't count on that. But... If God is your only good thing, then all he gives you to steward will be good by default. David's words, the lines have fallen, gives us the image of measuring cords that are drawn out and laid down to divide land boundaries. Land surveyors would use them for use in order to define pieces of property, in order to create a title deed. And there was a measured distribution of the land when the people of Israel came into Canaan by their tribes. We read about it in Numbers 26, 52 through 56, how the inheritances would be figured. The Lord said to Moses, spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names to a large tribe, 
You shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to lot between the larger and the smaller. Well, Joshua was the guy going in and and, and helping to set up the distribution of the land. And he appointed and he sent people out to survey the land and map it out according to the inheritance of each tribe, as was suggested by Moses. And we see the tribes allotted their land in Joshua chapters uh, 15 through 20. Particular names of people given particular valleys and rivers and hills and brooks and villages and cities and so on. So the imagery of David, when he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, is the image of land, of territory, or inheritance. Lines distinguish one man's property from another. And David says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That is David saying, I like the way things are. I am happy in what God has told me, what he has gifted me, and what he has given me to do. I like the way things are. Indeed, he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, for David to say he has a beautiful inheritance means that all things work together for him as a lover of God. His future held the promise that it would last forever. In his current circumstance, he found purpose in God's kingdom work. Now listen, I was thinking about that. He found found purpose in God's kingdom work. I think we need... I think we need that. I think we need a measure of validation almost from God or from other people to feel confident in what we have set our hands to do. I think that's the last thing in the world I want is to feel like what I put my hand to has dissipated and amounted to nothing. That Christ's kingdom did not expand by what I did. And I'm not talking about from the pulpit only. I'm talking about in the workplace. I'm talking about with my family, with my children, my grandkids, and so on, with the properties we own. I want a measure of validation. It helps me along when I feel like I'm on the right track with the Lord. You can be more emboldened when you feel like God has stamped the seal of approval on some of the things you've been doing. It's a feeling like you might be getting a a well-done, good and faithful servant type of commendation. I think that's what David's all over. I think he feels like his lines have fallen in pleasant places, the things he has, the things he's been given to do, he's, it's a beautiful thing for him. 
Also, David thoroughly enjoyed and interacted with the other saints. They were living and working to manifest God's will in the earth as it is in heaven. But ultimately, we know David depended on God and his goodness, whatever should befall him. For these other things, they can dissolve when difficulties arise, but not God. He is always at David's right hand. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that you uh, would use the time spent in that song to make us better people, to teach us that you are the one who should be our portion and our cup, and that we would have no good apart from you, and that all other things would would fit underneath this relational, intermittent, ongoing inheritance. You are our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.